Good morning. It is the second Sunday in Advent. We have gathered to worship the living God. Together we do that, but together Advent is about preparation. And, you know, we prepare some of these things and, and have some traditions we follow. But this morning, as I got up to look over and read, I was thankful for this particular Sunday in Advent. This second Sunday in Advent, we light, and I'm going to try and... Yeah. Boy, you always need to rehearse that stuff, don't you? We light the second Advent candle. It's the light of the candle of peace. Hear these words. He, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Friends, this is the candle of peace in a time when our circumstances will not give us peace. Because of what Jesus did at the cross, the Holy Spirit is given to us to bear the fruit of peace in our lives. Receive it in joy and love. Let's sing together, O come, O come, Emmanuel.
have a seat if you would please. Well, greetings and welcome, those of you who are here with us on site. And in particular, I want to thank our student string players here, um, Holland Christian and Ruth Kompozik and Bella Vanderveen from Harbor Lights, two of our students who are sharing their gift and their passion for music this morning uh, to be a part of our worship. We welcome them and welcome y'all with great open hearts. It's good to have you with us. So those of you on site and those of you online, whether at this very moment by live stream or later by record, we are together as God's people, and that's good news. A couple of quick announcements and some things. Um, first of all, there will be no 1015, the usual group I do with a follow-up with a pastor, a question and answer, interaction sort of thing. Um, the week has gotten very busy. There's some challenges. I recommend to you the Fear and Trembling podcast if you really want to dig into some of these things. Uh, we will gather for the fellowship coffee uh, to continue to have some time together and uh, share that. Many of you are aware uh, Friday night, uh, Jerry uh, Plegamars passed away, Shelley's husband, uh, in the home. It was a sudden and unexpected death. Uh, we want to continue to pray for the family. We sent the announcement out. There will be a memorial service here on Friday. Um, a number of other things, and some of you in various family groups, hard diagnoses, the challenges of a week. Um, we're living in a time where the good news of the gospel speaks deeply to the heart because the brokenness of our world seems to press in. So I catch you up on those things as well. Um, some information on the screen that I have, I want you to be aware of the mission fundraisers. We're uh, hopeful to get back to some of our short-term missions and you can purchase a holiday pie or pigs in a blankets. I was so anxious to say pies and pigs um, to help missions. I wish we had a P word for missions. Um, but that will make. Next Sunday evening, we hope to gather at 5.30 for a, a service, songs and scriptures. Again, it's a very simple service where you have an opportunity to sing uh, some of the favorite Christmas carols as we hear the scriptures read. Uh, that'll follow with a kind of cookies and milk, a simple fellowship, a time together. And then our Christmas services. I want to cast vision for you on that. Because Christmas is on a Saturday, it seemed best to us as pastors managing our time and your time and all the things with that, that we'll have three services through the course of that weekend. The first Friday on Christmas Eve, as we've often done, it'll be here in the sanctuary, but it will be led by the uh, worship team in Fusion. Pastor JB will be preaching. An easy way for me to think of that is Christmas Eve, as often as the case, will be our kind of fusion evening. The next morning on Saturday, uh, we'll have organ, the orchestra, I'll be preaching. Saturday will be our Christmas Day service. Um, and then Sunday is Christmas Sunday. That will again be here. Uh, Watershed will be taking care of the music. Pastor Aaron will be preaching. So over the course of three days, we'll have three opportunities to gather and worship. Each of the pastors will have a Sunday. Each of the worship teams will have a uh, service in which to preach. So we're sharing it like that. If you um, 
come for the uh, regular celebration service on that Sunday, you will have a different experience and get to enjoy Aaron. Um, I think at that time, will we be on the airplane to see my mother in South Carolina? And I'll think wonderful thoughts of you. Um, next week, uh, I'm looking forward to the ministry of our handbells. So we're in the holiday. We're navigating things as we can. Um, I encourage you. I've, I continue to sense manage your risk. Identify what it is in the midst of COVID. Manage that. I tend to have to, and this week I was called in emergency into a number of situations where I'm glad that I knew I was not uh, infected with COVID. So I manage my risks different than most folks and love your neighbor, help them know and manage their risks. Plus, I'll give you another thing that came to me. One of the reasons I mask perhaps after the service is because it helps me manage my donut consumption. And I saw my doctor this week and they spoke to me, both of them, about some 10 pounds of risk that I need to deal with. So we'll figure life out as it comes, but let's do this together as God's people, shall we? I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It's been a real joy to be able to work that into our regular worship. And it reminds me and stands as a bulwark against the catechisms of our culture. You know, we're trained by the world around us to pursue what I would call a cafeteria Christianity, where you kind of go down and say, well, oh, I like that idea. But then we get to the vegetables and we go, oh, no thanks, I don't like that. Or maybe I don't understand this, and so I'm going to forget that. The catechism helps us remember the fullness of what God has done. It's not a cafeteria Christianity where we pick what we choose, like this, don't like that. Instead, the whole counsel of God shapes a faith that shapes us, cafeteria Christianity looks for a faith to our liking. The whole counsel of God is God shaping our life to his liking, his gospel and fullness, the fruit of his spirit. It's not just adopting the habits and patterns of bygone people. It's not imitating behaviors of others or preserving a culture that once was. Instead, it's the question, what was the faith that shaped earlier people? And how can that same faith the faith shape us. It's not repeating the way they love Jesus. It's meeting and loving the same Jesus they loved. Do you see that difference? I don't want to imitate behaviors of people who love Jesus. I want to meet the Jesus that they loved. And that's what the catechism helps me do. That's why it's important to learn from others um, what that faith is, how to live it out, and particularly in our unique and challenging times. So this month, we're looking at a particular question. It's question number 35 from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll begin. What does it mean that he, that is the Son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin. 
Let us sing together with wonder, what child is this? seat if you would please. I'm going to ask you to pray with me and with a particular plea. Um, you know, pastors learn skills about how to kind of lead folks along even when inside there are sometimes moments of terror. We have a lot to pray for today and some things that are really important to us as a body and important to us as a whole church. And so this morning I was very careful to collect all those, update them with the latest that I had. And all of those notes are right there and very safe on my desk at home. <laughs> so uh, my apologies for the things that I'm certain I'll miss, but I'm trusting you to pray with those. We pray together, shall we? Let's go to the Father. Oh Lord, our God, how we thank you for your kindness. 
It's such a river of encouragement in a world that's so broken and so dry. Renew that river that we might receive your grace and carry it with us and share it through us to one another, to our neighbors, and indeed to the end of the earth. We thank you for your hand of care and guidance across centuries to your chosen people, how you've called us to open the doors of welcome as we would share the good news of a God who saves, a God who doesn't give us a law to perform in order to be loved, but who loves us and says, let my life change yours so that you can live into my good commands and purposes. Thank you for that gospel. May it be at the heart of all that we do here at Heart Awake. We pray for our leaders, Father, uh, for our council and for the deacons, for the various boards that work with our different ministries and the volunteers and staff. We pray that you would move by your Holy Spirit for a grace gift church where each of your people are functioning in the body of Christ by your good work in their life. We pray right now for our sister community watershed and for Pastor Aaron. We thank you that, uh, that we can stand with that uh, worshiping community and give you glory. We pray for a fusion, which we'll meet a little later under Pastor JB's teaching. Again, be encouragement and strength for them. And for Missione, and Pastor Florencio, that'll be right here. We thank you for the diversity and the strength of your body and the uniqueness of your work in each life. We pray too this day, Father, for celebration, the unique community you've called us to be a part of. And we come with many needs and heavy hearts. We pray very specifically for um, Shelley at Jerry's death, for Brandon and Sebastian, those in that family as they navigate this loss. We pray for John and Beth watching the Caring Bridge this week and seeing of Beth's situation or right now, eager to meet Jesus, being strength and encouragement for her. We hear a, a hard diagnosis for Helene, guide her and her family in these moments. Father, we thank you for good recovery for Doug and for uh, Marcia from surgeries. And I would pray for Gene, even as he navigates this season of life and finds himself weakening. Father, there are so many pressing things, and yet we thank you that you are the one who carries the burden. We simply walk with the Lord Jesus to find hope and strength. Father, we do play, pray for this uh, moment uh, in our culture and in our world. We see signs of turmoil and trouble, and yet we know that these things are really the, the painful voice of a broken world crying out for a Savior. Help us to recognize that we cannot save ourselves, but through what Jesus did at the cross, you have offered to all humanity the calling of adoption. And so make us good messengers of that good news. 
every place you would put us. Father, for crowded hospitals, for a community outside of Detroit that uh, mourns violence and death, for lawlessness in places, for the gathering of troops on the border of Ukraine, the collapse of cities in other parts of the world. Our world cries out for the Savior who brings new life and hope. Father, may we join our voices together before you to be a people formed by prayer and most especially the prayer that you taught us to pray, Lord Jesus, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Many folks were wondering, as the three of us gathered, Aaron and JB and I, to kind of pray through and get a sense of where the Spirit might lead us across Advent. And as we began to settle several months ago on these first 17 verses of Matthew, folks would say, the genealogy? Yes, we want to let you see that hope didn't just happen as an accident, but the genealogy of hope was God's good work in the fullness of time to birth Jesus uh, on planet Earth. Now this morning, I'm going to read from um, Matthew 17, but I'm going to read some particular highlights you'll see here, and there's a reason for these. Each of these are kind of the turning point in the genealogy. I want to hit that turning point at its conclusion. So here the Word of God recorded for us by Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. He writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to point something out here. This will be the key. This genealogy starts by looking at Abraham, to whom his faith was credited to him as righteousness, the beginning of the covenant. Then verse 6 goes on to say, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Again here, David is a key figure in this genealogy. On to verse 9. Now, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of kingdom. Here we see two kings from the era of the divided kingdom. We'll come back to these two guys. Then beginning at verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. This is another key marker in the genealogy, the exile. So from Abraham to David to exile. And then verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, and this is a word to underline, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 
14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you that centuries ago, through a Jewish tax collector, that is to say a traitor to his people, who sold out to the oppressive Roman government, but whom you loved enough to redeem and call, through him, he saw in his Jewish roots your good hand at work, and then he laid it out and recorded it for us. Thank you for the way you've preserved these texts across centuries so that now we can open this up and, and these names, so hard to read and pronounce perhaps, but they point us to your good preparation of the hope that you give to us and that we so desperately need. Guard us from my brokenness, but make your word clear. Illumine our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit that we might be shaped by your word. For we pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. It was fun for me last week to kind of get a breather and some time away, and I remember watching Lewis read that passage. Did he nail those names or what? After that, I'm just going to kind of skip, hit the highlights. You've heard it. I don't want to ruin it in your memory. Another thing I discovered, and some of you are going to find this hard to believe, but it's true. I am related to Paul McCartney. I tell you the truth. Follow this with me. You know Paul the Beatle. No, he played like this. The Beatles bass player, Paul. Paul married Linda. Now, Linda Eastman was an American from Cleveland. Her mother, Louise, was named, her maiden name is Lidner, Louise Lidner. And she spells it our way. So, Paul and I are related through his mother-in-law, but it gets better. Louise of the Cleveland Lidners certainly must have been related to the Cincinnati Lidners, especially the Cincinnati Lidner Carl Lidner Jr. Now, Carl, I, we like to call him in my family, long lost Uncle Carl. Carl was born in 1919 and he went on to, oh, own the Cincinnati Reds. In 2006, Forbes identified him, long lost Uncle Carl, I mean, identified him as the 133rd wealthiest person in the country. My long lost Uncle Carl. All this reminds us in painful ways, detail, that there are all sorts of ways to climb through your family tree. That's why, as we look at this text this morning, it's very important that we look in the genealogy of hope at this word, thus. This is where verse 17 begins, thus there was. Thus is what we call, friends, a logical infer inferential. It's a, a conjunction that serves this purpose. It conveys 
a deduction or a conclusion from the preceding discussion. Thus, there were 14 generations. It's saying all those names before serve the purpose of this. It's meant to be the conclusion of what verses 1 through 16 point out. So for us to understand what Matthew is saying about the genealogy of Jesus, we need to look at it through the lens of verse 17. This is what I want you to have a sense and see, that the Scripture helps interpret the Scripture. And Matthew says very clearly that there were 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. Let me give you a a way that this would have played out in the Jewish mind. 14 is two times seven. So there were two sevens, and then David, and then two sevens to the exile, and then two sevens to the Messiah. That would have played out in their mind like the Sabbath cycle that God established in the Old Testament. See, the Sabbath, the seven, 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 seven. That regular cycle of life for them. Every seven years for the Jews, the nation of Israel, they would cancel all debts. Think about what that would mean for an economy. If I'd gone to the bank to buy a house, and it was two years until the Sabbath and all debts got canceled, how much would the banker have lent me? Two years. He wasn't going to lend me 30 years of money and then get stiffed on 28. But God built this into the people that there's a forgiveness of debt every seven years, a regular cycle of forgiveness until The 49, there comes what was called the Jubilee year. And then not only were debts canceled, but all the economic capital among farmers, that's called farmland. All the land went back to the original farmers. That's the economic system of Israel. And it's not meant to determine economics so much as it is to let us see the regular forgiveness of debt and the return of hope that is met and comes all together in the person of Jesus. That's what Matthew would have been thinking, steeped in the Old Testament. Somehow in the United States, we seem to miss this regular Old Testament cycle of canceling debts. There's a question to ponder. Thus, those genealogies are remembered because they point the entire Old Testament to the person of Jesus. That helps us understand that Matthew, in his genealogy, is rooting that back into the Old Testament. That's why there's a difference with the genealogy that Luke has. Have you ever noticed that? It's there, and you ought to see it. But these are not different genealogies for two different persons, even less is there one true genealogy and another false one. It's no surprise or problem that these genealogies are not step by step, one by the other. That's because you could trace my genealogy to Paul McCartney and to my long-lost Uncle Carl, 
But if you go another way, you would trace my genealogy to Michael and Emily Kellner, who left poverty in Czechoslovakia to move into the tenements of New York City where they'd have an opportunity in the sweatshops to start a new life, even at the cost of 11 children born, nine died. See, that's another part of my genealogy, that in that generation, 11 children, nine died of childhood diseases that we forget now because we can vaccinate. You see, Matthew wanted his readers to see an aspect of Jesus. Luke wanted them to see another. There's all different kind of ways to climb through your family tree. Matthew wrote primarily for a Jewish audience, we suspect. He himself was a Jew. So he began the genealogy from Abraham. He wants people to recognize that Jesus is the completion of what God started with Abraham. People once asked John Calvin, when did the church begin? He said, with Abraham. That's where the covenant of God, the covenant of grace began. Abraham believed and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. Not because of what he did, but because of who God was. Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. Luke has a slightly different genealogy. He starts from Adam. Luke, we know, was part of the missionary band. He was the doctor who traveled to care for the health of Luke, of um, Paul. So he was Gentile, he was Greek, he was trained physician. And he wanted people to see that Jesus was the savior of all humanity because his genealogy went back to Adam. So, which is it? Is Jesus the fulfillment of the covenant? Or is he the savior of all humanity? Friends, it's not either or. It's both and. That's why we have Matthew and Luke. That's why they take a particular way up the family tree of Jesus. So whether it's to Paul McCartney or whether it's to two immigrants, I am all of who I am. Jesus is all of who he is. And this thus, this logical inferential, teaches us this important thing. I'm going to give it to you in Paul's words. He reflects on the same point, says it in his own words. But when the set time had fully come, the fullness of time, the Greek word there is chronos, when the planned flow of time had come to its completion, God sent his son born of a woman. God's plan from the very beginning had been that there would be a moment that the world would be ready, the stage was set, and a savior, not a teacher of the law, not a model of how to behave, a savior, a rescuer would be born. And it would be God himself who would take on human flesh. Who could believe it? But God began that until the fullness of time. Everything written before the birth of Jesus in the Old Testament is meant to point to and to illuminate Jesus. People who read the Old Testament and only see things to do miss the point. The Old Testament, Jesus said, and Matthew points out, and 
Paul affirms is given to us to understand and to see a Savior who's a rescuer. This week, I want to draw one key point from this genealogy, and I want to do that by looking at two of the kings named in Jesus' family tree here in Matthew. It's going to be a tale of two kings. It was in verse 9. We would have gone over quickly. The first was Jotham. Isaiah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz. It's as simple as that. Jotham is one of those few kings in the line of the divided kingdom. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom, Israel. There were a few good kings in the southern kingdom, Judah. Jotham was one of those. Now, you can read the background of Jotham. This will be in your sermon outline, either in the bulletin, or you can download it from our sermon resources. In 2 Kings 15, I'll just read you one verse. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. Now, it tells some other things about Jotham. He wasn't perfect by any means. But 2 Chronicles 27.6, it says, Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord, his God. So here in the genealogy of Jesus, the completion of God's work through the covenants of God, there is one king, Jotham, who is a good one. But let's learn about Ahaz, Jotham's son. Ahaz, very simply, was a bad king. You can read about him in Kings and Chronicles, but I'll give you some of the highlight summary verses. 2 Kings 16.2, unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. What do you mean? Verse 3, he followed the ways of the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel. He even, and he, this is written breathlessly, he even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Can you imagine a man who had let his son be killed so that he could live the life he wanted as a king? Second Chronicles 28, 1 through 3. Unlike David, his father... Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and he also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he sacrificed his children in the fire. It's hard to read this and not make the connection. They were medically incapable in that era of terminating a pregnancy from within. So the baby had to be born before they could kill it. But that was Ahaz. He would burn his children to please the gods of his age and surrounding circumstance. Jotham, the good king in the line of Jesus, Ahaz, the bad king. The news is that they were both there. Matthew is giving his readers then and now an important insight. The true and perfect son of King David, promised by God as king forever, had both good kings and bad kings in his background. The family line of Jesus included good characters and bad characters. Think about that. Good folks, bad folks. It's all in the family. 
there are some other folks in my various family trees that I'm not talking about. I know their story. I'd rather claim Paul or long lost Uncle Carl. Some we just skip over. Jesus is the descendant of good kings and bad kings. And here's what that means for you and me this day. I want to tell you, friends, be encouraged. Be encouraged because whether there's a good king or a bad king, the true and perfect king arrives right on time. The true and perfect king arrives right on time. You know, sometimes you've got a good king, sometimes you don't. But the promises of the living God stand eternal because they are the promises of God, not what we earn. God's plans and promises came to pass at the perfect time. They were not slowed down by a bad king, and they didn't depend on a line of good kings. They depended on God alone. It didn't slow things down to have a detestable king like Ahaz. Bad kings would be the end of the nation of Judah, that's true, but they could never prevent the promises and plans of God from coming to fruition. Think about that. The circumstances of your life will never prevent God from bringing his promises to pass. I want to be perfectly clear in the level that I'm referring to today. Good kings are a good thing to have. Good kings are always preferred over bad kings by the citizens. Good kings tend to steal less. Good kings tend to establish the rule of law for all. Good kings tend to move in peace and for security and defense. Bad kings are different. Life is better with good kings. Hurrah. Work for that. Pray for that. But don't think that the blessings of God the security of your life or the truth of his promises, don't think that those things stand or fall on how righteous or unrighteous the king is. You can depend on God. The true and perfect king will establish his righteous and just rule exactly as he is determined. Jesus Christ is on time and on the throne of the universe, whether people want Christ in Christmas or not. That's what matters to me. Christ is on his throne, and I seek to make my heart a throne of him. So there's a tale of two kings, one good, one bad, but the true and perfect king will arrive on time. You see, Paul writes in Romans 5, 6, at just the right time, and that time is a different word. In the fullness of chronos on the calendar, the pregnancy had come to its completion, but then there's the time, the kairos of birth, that moment where it has come to pass. I'm saddened by people who seem willing to compromise the gospel in hopes of securing political power. For the church, our message is the gospel of God's grace. Jesus has given his life as the promised savior of the world. And in the moment, the right time, the kairos, he was born and he lived and he gave his life on the cross for all of us. That is who the ungodly are, all of us. To understand the wonder of the Savior, 
you have to realize there's a sin problem. And so I am happy to help you understand the sin problem by being honest about my own sin and brokenness. And there's enough in my own broken and sinful life to illustrate. You can see how that in the midst of brokenness with one sinner, the good news of Jesus on the cross brings hope and transformation. And I'll go on. If it's helpful for you, I would even consider helping you understand your own sin and brokenness, but only so you can better understand the good news of a rescuing Savior named Jesus. He has come in the fullness of time. And while we were powerless, at the right moment, he died for us. These promises of God are set for an on-time arrival. You can rest assured in that and work not from hoping to gain something, but out of gratitude for what he has accomplished. I want to close this morning by just meditating with you out loud on some scriptures where we see these promises given to us by God, established, that arrive in just the right time. I'm thankful, and like Paul, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, God is at work and he will finish what he's begun. He will deliver on his promises. Some of you have faced real suffering and it's easy to wonder in the face of that suffering, how could this happen? What did I do wrong? How do I cope with the pain? Where is God? Friends, I wanna tell you, God himself has said, that he will complete what he has begun. The pain, the challenge, the sorrow, the scripture says it lasts for, in the context of infinity, it lasts for a moment. I'm confident because of who God is that he will complete what he has begun and what he has promised. Another great promise from Genesis 50, I hope you remember the context, it's the story of Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, remained pure in an impure world and was jailed for it. But he would later say, you intended to harm me. You intended it for evil, other translations say. But God intended it or worked it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Friends, God is sovereign, but there is brokenness about the land. There is brokenness and heartache on planet Earth. Though the brokenness of this world means it for evil, my God, who will complete what he's begun, will work it for good that many may be saved. Every time I look death in the face or sit with someone to deal with tragedy, I remember this verse and the story that is its context. I know that death or tragedy diagnosis are intended to harm and bring sorrow to God's people, but I know that God will work it for good for the saving of many lives. Imagine if you were able to look at the brokenness of this world, the evil perpetrated against you, the hard things that come against us and bring suffering, and say, though you meant it for evil, my God will work it for good that many might be saved. I was thinking of a particular thing. Funerals can be kind of hard for me. 
And the hardest of the hard are to bury children. When the coffin is that small, I don't call death God's will, and neither does he. And when somebody says, oh, God just needed another little angel, what goes through my mind, and usually I'm too polite to say it, is, oh, I'm sorry you worship a God like that. Let me introduce you to Jesus. You'll be amazed how different he is. Jesus would give his life on the cross so that the last enemy, death, will not have its way. Yes, death and sickness has robbed us of a life, but through what Jesus did at the cross, we are rescued from the final clutches of that enemy. Though this world meant it for evil and for my discouragement and my pain, my God can work it for good. James and Jesus probably shared a room growing up, so I think James is pretty close to Jesus. He saw him operate for years. And he wrote, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, he wrote this before there was an internet. He should do that because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Are you like me, finding yourself having a hard time listening with respect to people, particularly people that you think are working to harm you? Do you hear angry words in your mind? You know how happy we can look and inside we're just poking knives. Every instant you hear from that public figure and they open their mouth. What if instead of cultivating that thought or putting it on instant replay in your mind and repeating, what if instead you or I were to, to say, though you meant it for harm, God will work it for good? Or perhaps I'm confident of this, that God will finish what he started even in spite of bad kings or bad circumstances. Or maybe I have no need to seek power to defeat or to resist you and your stupid plans because Jesus came at just the right time. That same Jesus is at work right now in and through me. My anger will not drive my response to your wrongdoing. God's righteousness and justice, the gospel of his grace will. What would it be to live knowing that God, at the right time, has rescued us, and that the circumstances we find, even when meant for evil, that same God is at work through us in those circumstances to make a difference. Let's take a moment and pray, shall we? Oh, Lord, our God. What a challenged and broken world we live in. We, we know of the sorrow. And yet I pray that we might see that sorrow and trauma and threat as the scalpel in the hand of a loving surgeon who has himself given his life for ours so that we might face the brokenness of this world in the assurance 
of his on-time arrival and work in our lives. Father, I pray for those even now who weep deep in their hearts. I pray that you would be comfort and grace and Holy Spirit, that you would make yourself known in a way that, that would begin to take one step out of that pit and a next step and a next step into the fullness of your comfort and joy that we might become sharers of that fullness and comfort and joy. We thank you for Advent and for what it means for this extraordinary time of preparation. Father, there's a good king in our heart and a bad king. Our motivations are often so mixed, but I thank you that the true and perfect king will arrive at the right time, that he has rescued us. We give you praise and thanks as we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Let's sing together this truth. Hark the glad sound, the Savior comes. benediction from the Old Testament. This has been a promise and a blessing for the people of God from early, early on. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. Shalom.